you know, this all goes back to the <laughs> the name of the podcast, right? Like, like what what are matches? Like, how do we have more matches? Simple answer is we're going to answer it now today for everybody, and then you'll have the answer. <laughs> it's it's base training. <laughs> it's it's like it's uh, aerobic base. It's aerobic conditioning. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and with me in the studio today are my co-host, Andrew Jeanette, Dylan Johnson, and Drew Dillman. This week, we'll be talking all about that base. Stick around to the very end for some bonus content where Andrew goes on a tear about the importance of aerobic conditioning. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a specific training-related topic in the future, drop us an email to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast. All right, let's get into it. All right, guys. We are here with uh, myself, Adam Saban, my co-host, Andrew Jeanette, uh, guests Dylan Johnson and Drew Dillman. Welcome, guys. What's up? What's up? (laughs) Good to be here. Awesome. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what uh, brings us to starting a podcast, uh, what this podcast is going to be about. We're going to talk a little bit about Ignition Coach Co., which is the presenting uh, entity of the podcast. And then we're going to get into some discussion on base season. What does base season look like and uh, why you should be doing base season training uh, and how that's kind of the, the segue and entry point for preparing for race season. Uh, so, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Andrew. I am a coach with Ignition Coach Co. I've been coaching for probably five or six years now. Um, been racing for 10. I do road and cyclocross and some mountain bike racing. Um, I'm a super curious guy. So you're going to hear me get into the weeds on these podcasts. Hopefully that's uh, formative or at least entertaining to y'all. Andrew, where are you based out of? Uh, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, we're basically neighbors. Awesome. Uh, Dylan, let's, uh, let's go to you. Tell us a little bit yeah. about yourself. Um, I guess, how, how many years have I been coaching? I guess I started coaching right out of college at 22, and now I'm 27. Um, started with CTS and now, uh, I'm doing my own thing and me and Drew started Ignition Coach Co. Uh, also cycling YouTuber. Um, I would say that my coaching philosophy is kind of revolves around, uh, science-based coaching. I use the science to inform how I prescribe training. Um, and I'm also a, I guess, professional gravel racer at this point which kind of sounds weird to say because i was a mountain biker for so long um but i'm i'm basically full-on gravel now does it feel weird calling yourself a youtuber um i guess but i don't know i don't know what else to i don't know what else to call it right (laughs) 
Like, I'd be a little embarrassed if I were to <laughs> say, little, I'm a you YouTuber. Are you trying to be a YouTuber, man? <laughs> yeah, what? I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, How does it feel to call yourself a wannabe YouTuber? <laughs> <laughs> At least he's a pro YouTuber. All right. You're like a Cat 3 YouTuber. What do you think yeah. the threshold is for uh, when you get to start calling yourself a YouTuber? Like, how many subscribers do you think you need? Mm. I'm not there. We'll just go with I know that. Yeah, 10K seems like a good – that's a solid. That's like a small town. I would, I, I would say that at the point that your channel gets monetized and you're actually – YouTube is part of your income – then you can call yourself a YouTuber. That's that's the same criteria that I use for, uh, you know, a, a bunch of, you know, semi-pros like to call themselves pro cyclists. That's also the standard that I use for that. If you if a source of your income comes from racing your bike, then you're a pro cyclist. So I'm not a YouTuber, and I don't think I'm a pro cyclist. If those <laughs> if those are the parameters. Maybe, I mean, I didn't. Maybe, I didn't yeah, mean yeah. to like squash your accomplishments here, but <laughs> oh no, no, that's okay. I know I can. I can throw down. Well, one thing I really like is is sort of the distinction that people have made recently between elite and professional. Professional is mm-hmm. a classification of how you make your money, right? Not how good you are. Mm-hmm. Elite is a designation right. of the level that you compete at, right? So you could, I mean. There are American cyclocross racers, for instance, that raced worlds. You know, they're like, maybe they're top 50 in the whole world. Mm -hmm. Like, that's pretty darn elite. Are they professionals? I mean, maybe, probably not, but. um, Yeah, I I don't have any problem calling myself. Elite. I guess you could also get into the argument of, you know, at, at what point are you a professional? Like, if you're going to a race and you won $50... You know, like what income, <laughs> what, what, what percentage of your income do, needs to come from bike racing in order for you to be a professional? I don't know. Yeah. Or do, do a uh, bike shop gift cards count <laughs> or a free 26 inch tire at a mountain bike race? <laughs> it, see, the problem is, is if we're doing it as a, like a percentage of your total income, we all know that guy who makes so little money doing anything else that mm-hmm. bike racing might actually be 50% of his income. That was, that was me when I, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was me when I, like the first year I graduated from college, I was a coach, but I made so little money from coaching, um, that I was, I was literally paying rent by going to NUE races and then getting the prize money and using that as for rent. <laughs> Your your landlord was just sitting there on the side of the course, you know, like shaking his head as you drift back to P4. It's like, come on, man. Get to the front. Do we know anything about Drew Dillon yet? Let's uh let's yeah, let's hear from Drew a little bit. We'll give uh Drew a chance to rebuttal. The only thing we know about Drew is that he's not a professional cyclist or a professional YouTuber. Yeah, what yep. what even are you, man? Yeah, I'm Drew Delman. Um, I've actually thought this through. I, last night I was thinking about this. <laughs> Who <laughs> so am I? <laughs> Get ready. All right, Drew Delman. I am a Christian. I am a father and a husband. 
I'm a coach and I'm a bike racer in that order. So from most important to least important. So for, uh, yeah, I would categorize, yeah, those four things are probably the four buckets of my life. If, if you were gonna, if I, if I were, if I were a lunch plate, those are the four sections, but, um, but they all like kind of are all inter intermeshed as well. So yeah, I'm in Fairdale, Kentucky, which is a uh, the southern part of Louisville, Kentucky. Grew up here. Fun fact, I've actually lived in the same one-mile radius my entire life, except for when I went to college and I lived on a dorm. But I'm mm. uh, married to uh, an amazing wife, CJ. Uh, we have a beautiful daughter, Andy Taylor. She just started crawling last week, which is awesome. Um, yeah, and I started racing at a pretty young age cyclocross being the focus um got really into that when i was about 15 years old and then went to marion university uh i tried the whole uh like i worked um a very boring eight to five job that i hated for a, a year after i graduated college and figured out that that was not for me so then uh i actually didn't even consider coaching even at that point but a kid in louisville approached me and said hey will you coach me and my response was if you trust me enough um which i think is still my response to people <laughs> who call me and ask me to coach them today um i did not see myself being responsible enough or or i don't know i just didn't see myself being a coach but since then he 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 actually referred me to all his teammates so all his teammates called me and i started before i knew it i was coaching a handful of juniors here in louisville and uh decided why not give this thing a, a swing and um i think that was about four or five years ago and so uh been coaching full-time now for about three years or so and uh me and dylan started ignition just about a year ago and uh yeah yeah, we were just talking about how we were talking about this time last year, uh, Drew came down to do a gravel race here and we had two coaches, one of which is Adam. Um, and we were, we were trying to like film a video for the, for the website. And, uh, we were just reflecting on how far ignition has come in a year. It's pretty crazy. We actually recorded for like an hour and a half and ended up using zero of that <laughs> of that recording. It was so bad. It was just yeah. me and Dylan sitting on his clapped out couch in the middle of his house mm -hmm. talking about why we wanted to start a coaching company. And it was so bad that we just like basically deleted the video after we recorded it. <laughs> yeah, this, the scripted ver version was a lot better. Yeah. Here, here's the real question is are you a professional coach if you don't have a podcast? Mm. See, th see, that's when I welcome to the big leagues. <laughs> so that's what, like when we get into professional racing, I, you know, I don't, I don't have like a team handing me a check, but for many years I see my racing, uh, paying the bills because of the coaching. Like, I don't think yeah. I would be as good of a coach if I didn't race or have, have made a name for myself in the racing world. And so yeah. in, in a real sense, I, I, you know, I feel much more comfortable calling myself an elite cyclist, but, uh, cause I've always categorized it the same as Dylan. You're not until somebody's paying me. 
cat mm-hmm. hard monthly cash am i a pro and that is not happening yet but so what you're be, saying drew is you're an indirect professional cyclist yes and a wannabe youtuber with uh with 900 subscribers <clears throat> which is not nice. the monetization hey gotta start somewhere you're, you're getting real close it's a that it's a thousand subscribers i know it's really i think it's at like 980 wow I get I get about two subscribers a month. Dylan shared one of my video and I got nine hundred subscribers in a week. All right, <laughs> so, so really only eighty of those are like my own subscribers. The other nine hundred are just So if you're listening to Dylan. this, go subscribe to Drew and help him become a professional YouTuber. His lifelong yes. dream. Yes. <laughs> I want to be able to introduce myself as a as a YouTuber. Well, they, so to your point though, they kind of all feed each other, right? So, uh, I, like I consider my three sources of income, YouTube coaching and bike racing. And if I do better at a bike race, more people watch my YouTube and more people sign up for coaching. And Mm -hmm. you know, if my, if a YouTube video does well, more people sign up for coaching and, and, and more sponsors are are more interested in me to sponsor my bike racing. They're, They're all, they're all connected. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> youtube's hard man it's brutal what's harder a cyclocross race or youtube <laughs> different kinds of hard fair enough <laughs> is there a type two fun in youtube i think so i mean i uh I, the whole reason we're starting this podcast is because we are nerds and YouTube is just an excuse for me to be uh, more of a nerd when it comes to coaching. Like I get, I get to research hardcore this specific topic I'm doing a video on, and even if only 150, <laughs> if I only get 150 views, at least I got to like do some hardcore research on a topic that interested me. You know, like even that alone is like that's pretty cool. Like I enjoy that part of it. And YouTube forces you to do that, at least the, the way I'm doing it. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. So I, but even before I started YouTube, if I wanted to know the answer to a training question, I, w- I, would, I would look at scientific studies about that question. But I would say that kind of what YouTube forces me to do is that if I'm presenting it to people, I want to be as accurate as possible. And I want to see the full scope of the research. Um, partially because I don't want to look like an idiot on camera to thousands of people. So it, it really forces me to like topics that I think that I I've researched fully. If I'm making a video about it, I will, I will look at every bit of research that I possibly can. Um, and I think it, it actually makes me a better researcher because I feel like I'm not only doing this for myself and my own knowledge, but for other people. So well, and it's, it's cool that we're doing, you know, as our first episode base, right? You know, as coaches, you know, you would hope that we would all be able to talk about base, right? You know, we'd be able to articulate our, our ideas on a, on a pretty important and simple concept. Um, but preparing for this episode, you know, much like you said, Dylan, like I really went down a lot of rabbit holes, you know, and, and the more you think about these things, the more rocks you get to unturn um and i think cycling training is cool 
in that for most things, there's not, you know, there's not just one idea about, about a topic, right? There's like tons of different perspectives and there's even like research to support a lot of different perspectives. And so sort of exploring all those, mm -hmm. those different ideas is, is pretty cool. Um, so I, you know, I think, I think doing this and doing the research and then also articulating our ideas and what we found is going to make us all understand topics better and, and be better coaches. So it's pretty neat. Yeah. And, and that's what differentiates coaches from just your, uh, you know, pre-built training plans or any, you know, online virtual training program is because we have a wealth of knowledge and experience that we can apply to our uh, training philosophy, we can look at unique situations and adjust them accordingly. So not everyone's getting the same exact training plan. Everyone's training plan is completely individualized based on what their background is, what their day-to-day -day weeks look like, uh, what their goals are. Um, and we, we apply these different methodologies to, to help just individualize those training plans. Mm-hmm. Sweet. All right. So what's what's next? Are we uh, we're jumping right into the topic, or is there something else? <laughs> that was a good segue. Let's let's uh, let's get into it. Let's talk about Drew, base season. Drew's ready to go, <laughs> dude. I'm pumped. I've been pumped. Love it. I'm a little nervous now because Andrew said he did all this research, and I uh, <laughs> I don't know if I did. So I'm a little nervous. Well, I, I think every podcast needs you know. It needs the, the, the person that did way too much research and then the person that's just kind of, you know, comedic relief. Good. I, <laughs> I, uh, I won't take that as an insult. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably more confused now than when I started the research. So, um, you know, who's really better cool. off? Well, let's get into it. <laughs> so <clears throat> let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what is the significance of base season. Why is it important? Why should people do base training? Um, yeah, let's just let's talk about that a little bit. Sweet. Um, so, is that the so, first question? Yeah, let, let, let me, uh, I'll kick this off. So, um, you know, in a really general sense, base sets the stage for your whole season, right? I, I think it's um, the metaphor that you often hear about base is that base is the, you know, the bottom of your, your pyramid and the broader the base, the higher the base, yes. the higher the peak will be. And, you know, I've also heard analogies of like, you know, it's like a sword and like, you know, the wider the base of the sword, like the sharper and taller the sword can be. Right. But it, you know, I, it's I even think better than it's, a pyramid. It's even All better right, than a pyramid. A it's like a pyramid that cuts, <laughs> that can be wielded by warriors. Mm. Um, but I, I think it actually, that's a really good metaphor. I think, I think it's true um, in that base is going to improve your ability to handle more training. It's going to increase your repeatability so you can do more intervals, um, you know, within a session or within a race. But also, I think in like a chronic, like a greater sense, like it'll improve your ability to cope with the stress of training day to day. So the... I, it's a, it's a fairly common article or video or podcast or whatever to see on the internet, uh, base training is dead or that you don't need base training. I mean, what, what would you say to those people who are, who are talking about how you don't need base training? 
I, I would say to those people that you should stop um, using YouTube podcast article titles um, <laughs> for the sake of, um, you know, uh, clickbait. I, I think essentially what people are doing there is they're trying to um, make people think that they have a, a silver bullet. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if we talk about the characteristics of base season, um, you know, and, and we can get into this more later, like what, what are the exceptions to this, but oftentimes base season takes place um, in winter. You know, for like a traditional road calendar, you might start base in November, right? And if you live in a northern climate, it's cold. And so, you know, you're doing tons of, you know, slow, high volume riding. You're getting cold. You're out in the winter. Um, you know, uh, maybe you're on the trainer. And so, you know, this takes a lot of time and, and uh, like a level of dedication, I think, to do correctly. And so, you know, if there's a quicker way, you know, to have the same result, um, you know, people want to do that. So I think I think that's where all that comes from. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. So are you mm-hmm. saying there are no there are no shortcuts to the base season? There are no shortcuts are to the base season. I I think that you know one thing when people talk about maybe reverse periodization or or you know I, I don't have enough hours to train so I'm just going to do high intensity through the winter instead of base training. I, I really do think that people underestimate how easy it is to burn out or overtrain by the middle of race season. I mean there there is a reason why early season races have are packed with participants and sell out and then a late season race it's like no one's showing up uh that's not a coincidence um it's because a lot of people are burned out midway through the season and high intensity work uh you're just much more likely to burn out and or overtrain doing high intensity work and if you're doing if you're if high intent, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do any high intensity work during the base season or the off season, but if that's the focus of your training in January, you know, um, by the time that you get to July, the, the probability that you're going to be burned out or overtrained is higher. What I took away from that was, uh, when I host a race, it needs to be the first race of the season. Yeah, if we, if we ever host a race, it has to be the first race of the season. That's I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but first race of the season packed. Last race race of the season, barely anyone shows up. That's genius. So, so I I think what I'm taking away from that is that there's there's a couple of significant things happening here. The first of which is you do need to do base just for mm-hmm. you know the physical adaptations of of base training, but you also need to do base training for a practical reason, which is you can't do intensity year round. Um, mm-hmm. the autonomic nervous system stress, the, um, you know, the, uh, you know, like cellular damage associated with high intensity training prohibits you from doing that year round. So, you know, if you're going to train year round, you have to, what would be the word? Periodize it. Mm-hmm. Right. Money. Well, and I think, I think a common misconception is that base training is something that you do each season um, just to set like a baseline. 
And I think people overlook the fact that base training is compounding from season to season. You just can't train in base mode year-round or else you're not going to be prepared for some of the high-intensity efforts of racing. So if you skip out on base training for two years in a row, you're not having that chance to compound the effects year after year. If you gave someone said, you know, let's get you, let's give you five years to just focus on base training and then we're going to start preparing you for racing, there's a pretty good chance that that person's going to excel year one, year two into racing over someone who just starts, they get into racing right away and, um, you know, they're just kind of building and adding on to their base seat or their base fitness, uh, you know, year after year. Uh, if you have that aerobic foundation, uh, you're going to, you're going to be able to accelerate at a pretty steep, uh, you know, ramp rate once you do introduce higher, uh, intensity training. And so, you know, uh, yeah, so I've got two things. I've got two things to add here. There, the, the first one is, is what Adam said just now, aerobic capacity. So, so I, I am, uh, what Andrew said earlier, I, I find myself saying this all the time. The bigger the base, the higher the peak. I love that. Uh, and the reason that's true is because cycling is an aerobic sport. And the way you develop your aerobic engine, your heart, is by just doing long rides on the bike at low intensity. That is what you're doing when you go for a long endurance ride or when you're doing big volume during the base season. You're building that aerobic capacity, which then, once you get into those higher, harder intervals later in the year, you've got the foundation and the heart to back that up. And so even a track cyclist, sprint cyclist, is going to benefit from doing a base season, even if their events are uh, high-intensity, short efforts. The second thing to add is that in these books like The Time Crunch Cyclist and there's this idea of just do high intensity all the time in those books at the onset they say the better way to train is to do a big base of volume then do high intensity but if you don't have the the time capacity or the time uh, to do that type of training here's an alternative that seems to work as a good substitute and that's when you see the whole time crunch cyclist and even in a time time crunch cyclist training plan there are still endurance rides molded into that even on like eight or less hours a week but but even from the onset it says that's just for people who don't have the time to do bigger base seasons that are like 10 plus hours of training a week uh, which is probably like a, a minimum for a solid base i would say is pretty pretty standard yeah mm-hmm well, and it's, it's and, interesting and, to say that because something that came out recently that I thought was super interesting was um, the training of this guy, Nils Vanderpool, no relation. Um, he, he's the current, I think he's, he won Olympic gold. I don't know if he set a world record. I think he did for the 5,000 meter and 10,000 meter speed skating records. Um, and so I, I got a lot of people messaging me asking me to make a video about it. And I thought about making a video about it, but I'm not, I don't know very much about speed skating. So I thought I'd be stepping out of my lane a little bit. I know he did a lot of bike riding. So, yeah. So, um, I, I just did a little bit of quick research on it. And what I found was that first, you know, and this is the reason why I bring it up the record that he set for the 10,000 meters 
was it's 12 minutes. 12 minutes is, you know, definitely aerobic, but it's a super short event. Right. And so the way that this dude chose to train was by doing 30 hour weeks on the bike, almost, almost Mm -hmm. exclusively at zone two, at least for, you know, like a big portion of his season. So, you know, he did periodize things and I think he got a little bit more specific as he approached his races, you know, in terms of including more speed skating, but you know, it was like 95% of his training was just like long, slow endurance on the bike. Um, Mm -hmm. so to Drew's point, you know, uh, you know, people, people sort of, I think have this illusion and, and this is something that's, you know, true in some cases that your, your training should look like you're racing, right? So there's like an old idea that like some coaches hold that, you know, if you want to have, you know, a 20 minute power of 400 Watts, you should just ride at 400 Watts all the time, like as much as you can, you know, which, you know, if your FTP is currently 300 Watts, you know, is like a, like a VO2 or like an anaerobic capacity workout. And, you know, as we all know, it's not going to (laughs) work, you know, and, and, and it's not only does it not work, but you couldn't do that all the time. You know, I'd be like a super, I'd be an express ticket to burnout. Yeah. Like the harder you go, it's like the fatigue associated with the intensity goes up exponentially. So like base season is one level of fatigue. It's not like, Oh, base season threshold VO2. I mean, it's like base season and I guess this is a podcast so nobody can see my hand gestures, but like it's an exponential curve where it's getting steeper and steeper. So when you get in the, the farther over your threshold that you go into that anaerobic zone, the, the increase is like significant when it comes to fatigue and, and everything associated with that. So if you can keep, you know, the, you can do a huge amount of this, this base season training um, with not as much fatigue which means less burnout. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that that's oxidative stress and autonomic nervous system stress. And I, I don't know if this is like a chicken or the egg thing, like maybe the two are coupled together. Um, but that's, that's, it's interesting actually. Um, that's, I think one of probably the adaptations from doing a lot of volume year to year is um, the ability to cope with that oxidative stress. You have like a greater antioxidant, buffering capacity. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's again, like to kind of go back to the original point of like, what is the significance of base is, is it, it increases your ability to cope with that stress. Right. Right. And I, I, and having, having a good base season when you get to your build season and you're doing more high intensity efforts, not only are those high intensity efforts going to be better quality um, and you're going to be able to do more of them and you're going to be able to repeat more efforts, but you're also going to be able to recover faster from those high intensity efforts than if you just started in January doing high intensity um, because, you know, you're, you're at a certain fitness level starting out doing those high intensity efforts. It's not going to take you a week to recover from a high intensity session. So if we kind of go back to one of the uh, earlier questions that I think Drew brought up, uh, you know, if you're getting a late start into training for the season or if you're super time crunched and you only have 
handful of hours to dedicate to training, should you skip base training? Like, is there still, uh, you know, if, if you can only train for four to six weeks before your first event, should you still, uh, do a dedicated base training, uh, you know, structure to your, to your plan? Or what do you guys think about that? I think you probably need to decide whether that event you really want to peak for it or not, because, you know, I mean, if the event is important enough that you want to do as well as you possibly can, it's an A race, but for some reason you only start training for your A race a month beforehand or two months beforehand, you know, that, I don't know, that becomes a different question, but I think the, the question you need to ask yourself is, you know, do I want that race in two months? Do I want to peak for that race or should I, you know, because I'm on this limited time frame, should I try to peak for a later race? And I would say as a coach, if I'm talking to an athlete and, and, um, I would probably say, Hey, let's try to peak for a later race. This is actually a pretty common thing that comes up. People will say, um, my race season starts in March, but just as an example, my race season starts in March and I say, how should I train? And I was, and I say, okay, well, do you want to peak in March or is that just when your first race is? Because that's a huge difference right there. Um, and they're like, no, well, you know, it'd probably be better to peak for nationals in June. And I'm like, okay, there we go. We're not going to base your training around the racing that's happening in March. We're going to base your training around the peak that you want to have in June. So I don't, I don't really know if that answered the question, but it's just kind of how I have these conversations with athletes when they say, oh, I've only got a month to train for this thing or I've got two months to train for this thing. Oftentimes there's races down the road that they actually care more about. Yeah, yeah no, I within, think that, that directly... So yeah, let me, let me jump in here quick. So, because I... So, so Dylan, you, you said you don't know if that answered the question. And I'm going to say, I think you touched on a really good point that a lot of people overlook when they're thinking of that question. You know, their first race of the season is in March, but for whatever reason, maybe they raced cross until December. They took January off. Now they're getting back on the bike in February and they start feeling these emotions of the race seasons, you know, looming in the near future. I don't have time to go back to base training. I need to just start sharpening the knife and getting ready for that first race of the season. And I think the reason is because a lot of people uh, misunderstand the role that races can play during the base season. They think that if you're racing, you're no longer allowed to train uh, in, you know, uh, a foundations phase that, that they need to just completely skip that. And I think what you're saying is, you can absolutely introduce racing while you're still in a base training phase. You just have to understand that the priority level of that race is going to be somewhat compromised and account for that. And, you know, if you have multiple races later in the season that you would like to prioritize higher, you just have to know uh, that at some point you'll transition out of base training prior to those races, but you want to try and extend your base season as long as possible, even if that, uh, includes some of the early season racing that's going to take place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so the, the thing that I was going to say, and this sort of touches on what you're saying here too, Adam, but, but more on what Dylan said, um, I think if we step back even further, um, 
you know, it's when we choose to skip base, you're not, you're not only just prioritizing, you know, that race that's coming up in one month, but you're, you're also prioritizing um, that entire season over long-term development, right? So you made the point earlier on about, you know, if you had three years before you had to be performing at your best, how would you spend those three years? And, and you were positing that the answer would be you would do, you know, tons and tons of base. And that relates to what Drew said about kind of the durability of those adaptations. So, you know, when I talk to some of my athletes about, um, you know, why base is important as opposed to, you know, sharpening up and doing super race-specific efforts is I categorically think that those uh, adaptations differ in that the adaptations that make us really good for racing are somewhat transient. They come quick, but they also go away quick. And so I, I like to think of those as software updates, right? Um, these are like, you know, biochemical or enzymatic changes that are happening that make us really good at short, sharp efforts. Whereas the adaptations from base training, I like to think of as hardware. You know, these are structural adaptations that we need to make if we want to have a big engine, right? So it's like tuning versus engine building. And the rider who does years and years of, you know, an increasing volume of base each season, you know, is going to have a V8, you know, versus a rider who only does intensity, who has a finely tuned inline four engine. Yeah. And I think the important thing you're, I, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think the important addition here is that the base training that you're doing takes it takes a very long time to develop and the high intensity work does not take a long time to develop. So, you know, you could still be making gains after years of base training and, and they've done studies where they've shown that you're kind of maxing out the gains that you're getting from high intensity work after like two months. So within training peaks, there is this feature called the ATP, the annual training plan. And in order to use this feature, you have to put in A races. And if you put too many of those A races in the calendar, it like really messes it up. Because what, what Training Peaks has figured out is you put in your A race and it basically works backwards from there. And if you, if you put in an A race for a lot of times, it's like the middle of the summer. So like the end of June, you're doing base like all the way up to April from like January to April. And then the two to three months before the race is when you're really getting into the build and the race specific training. But if you put in all these a races and that's probably that's what Adam said is, is people misprioritize races. Um, and even if it is a huge race, like the mid South is next week and that's a big race. And I'd be lying if I wasn't like super excited for it and pumped for it. But on my ATP in Training Peaks, it is like a C or a B race because my A race isn't until Tulsa Tough in June because that's I'm building up to that point. If I just had all these A races on the calendar year round, there would no be there wouldn't be any any base season. So yeah, like to again just reiterating what Adam said there, you have to know. All right, I'm going into this race. I might not be firing on all cylinders, and I'm aware of that ahead of time, but when Tulsa comes in June, that's when I'll be firing on all cylinders. And having that that 
priority as an athlete is, is really important. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one thing that I want to kind of jump on with here is um, the question of, you know, if you are going to race during your base season and you have the choice of races, you know, what kind of races do you want to do? And, and I'm curious what, what all of you think on this topic. But for me, you know, I've always used early season um, races in like, you know, maybe that coincide with my base period for two things. The first is speed work, you know, and, and what does that mean? That means, you know, like getting, getting speed in my leg from, you know, sitting in a pack at 30 miles an hour. That's, that's something that's really hard to do on your own, especially if you're in a base period, um, unless you have somebody driving a scooter for you every day. And the second thing is uh, pack skills. One thing that can really, I think, derail a season is if you don't have any early season races or low priority races, you get to your your a race which is to use drew's example let's say like tulsa you're going to be so dang scared you're going to be so inefficient you know moving around a pack um so i think that it's really important that we allow um some time to do some low pressure races where we can simply get comfortable riding around other people again um you know especially if you've been doing base since november and you've been riding alone a lot or even on the trainer, which a lot of us are during the winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I I will get athletes sometimes that say, "Oh, I'm I'm training for I don't know the, the kind of athletes that's just training for one event." You know, maybe it's an unbound, maybe uh, you know, maybe it's something else, but it's just one big event on the calendar, and then they feel like they shouldn't do any other race up until then. Um, I, I, I think that's a mistake. And, and even if the racing comes in the base season, I think that's fine. Um, racing it, race experience makes you a better racer. And, and even if you're not going to do your best in that race, because you're still in the middle of base season and you know, you had a, you had a big volume week leading into the race. So you're not completely tapered. That race experience is going to help you, uh, for your race two, three months down the road. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Do you, do you use early season races, Dylan, um, as, as the resident gravel pro to, to do things like test tires or test nutrition? Do you mm-hmm. maybe even like mess with pacing strategy if you're doing a low priority race or those relevant, relevant yeah, things to I, think about? Yeah. I, I test a lot of different things. Um, tires, uh, pacing strategy, nutrition, all of it. Uh, and, um, I mean, I think, I think that it's, it's a good time to, to test out equipment because a lot of times equipment responds differently at race pace than it does on a training ride. I mean, just as an example, if you're going, if you're doing a 22 mile per hour average speed at a gravel race, uh, that's a lot different than rolling around at a 15 mile per hour average speed when you're doing zone two on gravel. Um, your tires flat a lot easier. You know, you have to have better handling skills. Um, your nutrition has to be uh, much more on point if you're at race pace than if you're just doing a long endurance ride. I mean, I, we were talking about this. I can eat almost anything on a long endurance ride if I just stay at zone two. But if I'm at, if I'm at race pace, you know, I have a hard time 
eating a bar, right? So practicing race nutrition in a race is super important because it's, you know, even if you're doing a hard interval session, you don't, you may not be, um, uh, you may not be going hard enough to have the gut issues that you may have during a long race when you're five, six hours in. Here's one very practical reason I like early season races. And I find this more so for harder types of racing, like cyclocross, crit racing. Typically, when I show up to the first race, I don't do as good as I think I'm going to do. And getting my teeth kicked in early in the year kind of like kicks me on the motivation boat of like, I need to step it up a notch. And it, but if you do that earlier, early enough in the season, you've got time to make those changes. Like go cross is September. You know what I mean? Like cross nats is until December. So you've got three months to get to work. And if you don't, if you just don't race, like, like Dylan said, he's got athletes who just have that one big race. You lose out on that, man, like I just got beat. I need to step it up a notch like that. That tends to, to help me as an athlete as a racer. Mm -hmm. So going, going back to Andrew's question earlier. So Andrew, you were asking if you could choose what type of races you would put into your base training season, you know, early season. Um, I like to think about it as what is the fatigue effect that that race is going to have on an athlete. So if they're only two months into their base season, I'm probably not going to recommend them to go do a five hour gravel race because we're likely going to lose a week or two weeks of training afterwards because their body's just not prepared for the type of effort that they're going to experience and fatigue that they're going to, uh, experience from that kind of race effort. So a lot of times, like in this might segue into a, another topic here. Um, a lot of times I'll try to choose higher intensity, shorter duration events to throw into the base season, one, it's a good way to kind of just touch up and maintain some high-intensity efforts. Uh, even though they're not doing any high-intensity in their training, uh, they, they at least get to experience some adaptations and uh, some of the emotional and, and cognitive um, effects that higher-intensity racing has on, on an individual. Um, but also, even though a 45-minute all-out effort feels super hard in the moment, you can usually go out and do a three-hour endurance you know, base training ride the day after you're not completely smashed and laying on the couch for four or five, six days after that kind of a race. Um, so I like to kind of just think about where's an athlete at in their base training, what is their fitness level currently and what kind of race can we introduce that's going to allow them to uh, get the experience they need, whether it's, you know, practicing nutrition or gear setup or, um, you know, warm up or pacing without completely putting them under the table. That's going to take away from a week or two of, uh, you know, quality training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny you, you say that cause, uh, and it probably depends on the, l the level of the athlete or the history, the athlete's history. Uh, cause with myself, I kind of do the opposite. I do like my really long events or races early in the year when those are kind of fit into that base season long focus. So like, for example, the mid South next week, that's a hundred miles that fits what I'm training for, but, but I also have the capacity to do a hundred miles and not be, uh, like just boxed for a week. So 
So, and then, and then as the season progresses, my events get shorter and shorter towards, but my goal is crit racing. So it's a little different when, when my goal is an hour. Um, yeah. And for you, Drew, like you, you know, the mid South, you can't, you know, pick that race up and drop it in April. Like it, it happens May, March 12th. So right. you don't have really, a, you don't really have a choice. That's, that's a high priority race for you that you, you know, like to incorporate into your early season mm-hmm. uh, race schedule. So for you, maybe you're going to dedicate an entire recovery week afterwards because you know that that's going to be a hard effort and it's going to take a lot out of you. Even though like you're coming in with a fairly high level of fitness, there's Mm. still going to be some residual fatigue that's going to affect your next handful of days of training. So you're probably going to already account for that in your, uh, you know, in your training plan and, you know, maybe put some kind of dedicated recovery period right afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think this is with, with gravel getting bigger and bigger, you see these, these athletes, uh, doing gravel in the summer and then cyclocross in the fall. And it makes me wonder at what point should you stop doing these long events and start doing harder training? So basically when do you stop base training and when do you go into more anaerobic focused races or efforts? Um, cause I wonder is doing the the unbound 200 in June, does that hinder your cyclocross season that starts not too long after June? You know, cyclocross starts in September, October. So um, at what point do you, do you call it quits on these super long events and start, start uh, focusing on the shorter efforts? I, I don't know. It's probably individual, but um, I, that's something that I definitely find myself thinking about. And for me, it's very intentional. I, I, for years and years, I've only done long races up to about May. And then after May, you don't see me doing many long races that are these ultra events. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a, a key differentiating factor there is even if it's a race like Unbound, that's 200 miles. I mean, you can't do an anaerobic effort for 10 hours but you're also not doing strictly zone two for 10 hours, right? So it's not, that's, you know, any kind of race is still going to be outside the kind of standard constraints that you would have for, you know, an early season base period. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's still going to be high intensity efforts. There's a lot of pressure too. I think that's something that goes into it. Um, You know, the longer the race, probably the more preparation that's going to take place. And that puts a lot of stress and just pressure on, your life in general. So you have to account for that too. There's going to be fatigue from just the mental, uh, you know, and, uh, emotional input that goes into a big race like that. Like, can you rebound and start your cross season two weeks after a 200 mile race? Uh, I don't know. It might, I think that'd be pretty challenging because I think you'd be burnt out pretty, you know, mm-hmm. physically and mentally from an effort like that. I, uh, I'll say that I I kind of find myself agreeing more with Adam's approach lately, and it's specifically because I, I talked about this in a video, specifically because of um, some research I did into how important intensity is during the base season. Um, and there's there's a recent study where they had a, a group do no intensity during the base season, which isn't uncommon for people to do, just strictly zone two, and then they had a group do, I think they had them do a high intensity session every seven to 10 days, which is 
that's not super frequent, but it's enough for maintenance, right? I call it maintenance intensity. And the group that did maintenance intensity, not surprisingly, was more fit at the end of end of the base season. That I, I don't find that surprising. Um, but perhaps what is surprising is that even even a couple months later, I, I forget the exact length of the study, but even sometime later, that group was still at a higher fitness level than the group that didn't do the maintenance intensity. And the study even said that they they thought that the group that didn't do any maintenance intensity would catch up, um, but they never end up they never ended up catching up. And I think what this goes to what Adam's saying is that in the base season, where the vast majority of your training is zone two, uh, you know it's it's okay to have a you know a quick forty five minute um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it's like a crit or something where it's not, it's not going to ruin your training for the whole week. Uh, as opposed to like, if you did a, a hundred mile, uh, gravel race where you, you couldn't physically train, uh, the next week, it's not going to ruin your whole week, but at least you got a little bit of maintenance intensity in there. And, and also this maintenance intensity doesn't need to be super specific because you're not close to your race. So it's just a fun, non-specific, easy way to get in some intensity. Wasn't that wasn't that basically why cyclocross was invented was to uh, was to like fill in the gap between the road seasons so that you'd have some off yes, season. But, but what I will but I what I will say about cyclocross is that I think there's a big difference between doing what I just talked about and doing a cyclocross season where you're racing one to two times a weekend and that's what you're training for and you're doing intervals specifically for cyclocross midweek. Uh, a lot of people throw out the example of, oh, you know, cyclocross must be working because look at uh, Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpoel. Hmm. I, I think what people don't realize is they take a break after cross season and then do a base season and then do their road season. They're not mm-hmm. using the cyclocross season as base for road season. Right. Yeah. There are also, so two things on that. I, I do think that that's maybe why it was invented, but I don't think the people who invented it were sports scientists. <laughs> I think they're kind of like bored Belgians, yeah. right? You know? Yes. Um, but good that, point. <laughs> But the second thing is, uh, you know, I do think in a lot of ways, including a cyclocross season, uh, makes you a better all-around athlete because it can help address certain limitations. However, um, I think to Dylan's point, you know, we shouldn't necessarily emulate, you know, what the best in the world do because what works for the best in the world might not work for us, right? So I think, you know, with Matthew and Wow. um, you know, they might just be the best no matter what they do. You know, they could, they could do the exact wrong training. They'd still probably be very, very good. Yeah. All right. What else is there about the base season? Let's keep going. So, so let's expand a little bit on that last uh, thing that Dylan just touched on. He was talking about maintenance intensity. What do you guys typically uh, prescribe during the base season as far as intensity goes? Uh, do you guys feel there's an optimal intensity level during the base season? Is there a ceiling for how much uh, intensity you should incorporate or how high of intensity you should incorporate? 
Um, what, what's your general approach when you think of in, integrating intensity into an athlete's base training program? Yeah, usually what I'll do is, um, usually what I'll do is, uh, let's go with Andrew first. <laughs> okay. I, I was just going to say that the, the base season is not a monolith, right? So, you know, within the base season, we have multiple, uh, meso cycles, right? So you have like a base one, a base two, a base three. And if you have time preceding that, you have like a transition period. So the answer is, is that it depends on, on where we're at. And so um, I think this holds true for the season as a whole in most cases. But, you know, you're, you're um, modulating the volume and the intensity. So, you know, we're building volume at the beginning of base season. And it initially is, you know, without really any intensity. Um, you know, that's not to say that you're just doing zone two riding. Like maybe you're doing... Um, stuff to work on your pedaling, increasing your efficiency at low and high cadences and things like that. Um, but as the base season progresses and you've become adapted to handling a increasingly large volume of low intensity, you know, and you, you can handle that, um, you're ready to move on, then slowly intensity starts to creep its way in. So for most of my athletes, and it again, it always depends on the individual, but maybe you start doing some some amount of tempo work um, or like an easy over under um, day in your in your base two, um, and then the intensity continues to increase. Maybe to doing some threshold work in base three. Did you just say an easy over unders workout? Yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> elaborate. <laughs> elaborate. Right. So. Um, you know, you might do uh, an over-under workout where you do, you know, 120 to 150% for the over, right? And then maybe you do like mm -hmm. 75 or 80% of FTP for mm -hmm. the under. Um, but what I really like um, for that time of the year, just to have some variable power in, in some level of um, stochastic effort in the training plan. Um, oh, hold on. What what did you just say? Stochastic? Stochastic. Yeah, so it means What's like non-steady non or like up and down. Um, so, okay. so one thing that I like to prescribe is is like um, zone five for the over. So maybe you're doing 105 to 115 percent of threshold for the over, and um, you know maybe 80 percent of threshold for the under. And this this sort of has the added benefit of you know hopefully for the over you're generating just a little bit of lactate. Um, and so then during the under, you can hopefully, you know, help improve um, your mitochondrial function. Um, you know, and, and during your base period, you should have, you know, increased the density of mitochondria and the um, number of mitochondria in your, your type 1 fibers, your slow twitch fibers. Um, you know, and we want to... Andrew, wanna, what is mitochondria? It's a powerhouse of the cell, bro. <laughs> yes. And so, and so the, we I guess all the idea, have heard that. Of course. And I guess the idea is like with that over under work, we're, we're continuing to improve the function of our mitochondria by feeding it a bit of lactate. Right. And so this goes into this idea of lactate clearance. Um, and so this is going to pay huge dividends later when we're doing higher intensity work um, where we're generating, 
you know, much, much more lactate, maybe, you know, uh, you know, eight, 10, 15 millimoles of lactate from a given effort. Um, you know, we have to prepare our mitochondria to be able to, um, you know, I, I guess you could say like uptake that or like recycle that. Um, and so just kind of getting these processes going, um, of, of using lactate as a substrate, I think, uh, you know, can begin in base. Um, and the other thing the too is that I... those, those, those efforts sort of end up averaging out to threshold. So it's sort of like a sneaky, like easier way of getting athletes to start to ride near their threshold, um, without having the psychological strain of doing, you know, like a steady state effort at 95%. The way I yeah, describe so Andrew, that, I, go ahead, Drew. The way I describe that workout that you just said that the easy over unders um, or tempo over unders is what I call them. Uh, the reason that that is a good workout, and this is what I tell athletes, is the focus is still tempo, um, which is which is well below threshold, well below that like increased fatigue. You can do a lot of tempo. But you start to like what you said, creep in that anaerobic, throw in some like one minute VO2s. Basically what you're doing is like throwing a bunch of lactic acid at the system and your body has to figure out what to do with that while still in that tempo zone. So like later on in the training when you're just doing VO2, you do VO2 then you rest. But at that time of the year, I'll do like very short VO2s mixed with tempo like you're saying. Your body has to figure out what to do it's like you're filling up a cup with water and when you're doing tempo, it's like it's going in, but it's coming out. But when you dump, it's like you spray in there a bunch of water all at once and it's almost overflowing. That's like that one minute VO2 and your body has to figure out how to get rid of that while still at a pretty decent tick when you're at your tempo. And so, yeah, it helps your, that's what it means to like be better at lactate what'd you say lactate buffer clearance yeah yeah i, I like clearance. to think about it there in terms go. of clearance. like clearance as opposed to buffering i mean i do think that 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 is a thing that we're sort of like buffering um the metabolites from glycolysis I mean, like that's like a very real thing like we're we're buffering you know hydrogen ions and inorganic phosphate that that it starts to accumulate in the cell but i think when it comes to lactate there's a real misunderstanding about you know, what it is. So, you know, originally we thought that lactate caused fatigue and then now people realized that it, it, it really just correlates with fatigue. Um, and it's probably something else that's the cause. And so, you know, with that, the other discovery is that, you know, lactate is actually a really great substrate. Um, so, you know, we produce What's lactate. What's a substrate? Substrate is a, a fuel source or, um, the thing we're using to Fuel take source. chemical energy in, and turn it into mechanical energy by producing okay. ATP, which is the currency yep. of the cell. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, lactate is, you know, as part of this process, I, you know, it can go back into the Krebs cycle um, and it somehow gets shuttled to the liver. And then within the liver, it, uh, you know, at, at some point it's turned into pyruvate and then pyruvate is um, mixed with some other stuff. And then we, we have gluconeogenesis, which is this idea that, um, you know, glucose is, is recreated. And so 
you know, all of this actually makes a lot of sense if, and I'm sure most people probably haven't done this, if you look up the um, chemical formula for lactate, it's essentially the same chemical formula as glucose, but everything is half. So there's like half the carbons, half the hydrogen, half the oxygen. Um, so that, that really just needs to be like reassembled because it's only, it's partially metabolized glucose. So we just put it back together in the liver um, and it goes back into the blood and then, then we have more energy again. So um, it's really important that we have the ability to do this. And, you know, if I'm not mistaken, you know, this requires that we have well-functioning mitochondria, right? And so that's, this is like, it, to kind of make this full circle, that's, you know, one of the major adaptations of base training is increased mitochondrial density and function. And so if we don't do that, then um, we're basically leaving all that fuel on the table. You know, it just accumulates in the blood. Um, nothing happens to it. Not only is it, you know, just hanging out in there and maybe making us, you know, feel bad or it's correlated with things that make us feel bad or, you know, fatigue. Um, but we don't get to reuse it. Um, or at least it takes a lot longer. So it takes us slower to recover. We have less fuel available. So to sum up what Andrew just said, <laughs> for all of those uh, less intelligent nerds out there like myself, lactic acid is a fuel. Less informed. There we go. Lactic acid is a fuel that our bodies use. And, and to that point, I'm pretty sure when, 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 when scientists figured this out, uh, there was a, a nutrition company that actually started putting lactic acid in their drink mix. I, I don't know the exact company that did this. Um, I used it at some point, but I don't remember what, what it was. But you could go to the ingredients list, and in the ingredients list, it said like lac, some form of, of lactic acid or lactate or something. And you're like, that's in this drink mix? Why am I putting that in me? Because there's, there's been this, this long history of like, oh, bad, lactic acid. No, no, I don't want that. You know, but now that it's a fuel, like it's something that your body uses to propel itself forward. Right, and I think I think another important thing to kind of um, just touch on here is um, if you look at the lactate kinetics as you're increasing intensity. So as soon as you go over that first lactate turn point, so LT1, which typically corresponds to the top of your zone two, um, below which we're training base, um, you know, your lactate levels are rising, right? Um, you know, but you're not, what, what sort of sets, you know, where your, you know, threshold is, for instance, is how strong your ability is to, to clear lactate. It's not necessarily that you aren't producing it, you know, so um, those are, those are two different things, right? Like you could, you know, be producing a ton of lactate, but if you have the ability to clear it at the same or a greater rate than your your blood lactate levels stay low and you can presumably like continue riding without fatigue. Um, so I think, I think that that's just an important distinction. You know, it's not necessarily that we, no, do we, we no. don't want to produce lactate. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should start talking about, uh, 
what you just touched on, which is is the you know the lactate turn points and why those are important for base training. Because we did kind of get off the topic of base training there, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, I'll just keep going because I'm I'm on one now. Um, <laughs> so so as most of our listeners, you all out there are aware you know, base training primarily involves riding at, at zone two. So, um, we have multiple lactate thresholds. So we have the one that everybody knows about, which is, you know, can also be called FTP or OBLA or MLSS. Um, that's, that's, um, your second lactate threshold, but we also have a first lactate threshold also could be usually it's, it's not always exactly the same, but it's, usually correlated with VT1, which is your first ventilatory threshold, um, which would be determined in a lab. Um, and uh, this, this sort of like sets the, 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 the level or the threshold for your, um, you know, we also call it our aerobic threshold. And so, so when we're doing base training, we want to stay below this because one of the major goals of base training is to push up LT1. And in my estimation, LT1 is, is super, super important because it, for two reasons. One, I think for, you know, a race like Unbound, it sets the pace that you could sustain for the whole race. Um, so the higher your LT1, um, the harder you're going to be able to go for those ultra endurance events. And the reason for this is because that first lactate turn point, um, is essentially when we start switching from burning a lot of fats and we're sort of increasing the amount of um, anaerobic or like aerobic glycolysis happening. Um, and so fatigue starts to increase quite a bit above that. Yeah, and I, I think it's important. Here's kind of the reason why it's important to stay below this first lactate turn point. Uh, when you're doing zone two training and this goes for during the base season and it goes for all other points in the year, it's actually very important to stay in below this first lactate turn point. If you're doing a zone two ride in the build training as well, just so that you can do your high intensity rides at a higher intensity with better quality. But, um, they, they've done research to show that this first lactate turn point might you know, it, it's, it's kind of like the on off switch for the autonomic nervous system. So at the point that you go over that intensity, you're building autonomic nervous system stress, um, which isn't a big deal if you're doing it, you know, a, a couple times a week, like maybe two times a week. But if you're, if you're building up autonomic nervous system stress every single time you go for a ride, so five, six days a week, that's the kind of thing that leads, you know, you, you could do that for a week or a month, but, but that's the kind of thing that leads to, you know, a couple months down the road, uh, you're, you're chronically fatigued every single day you're tired and you can't figure out why. Um, that's the kind of thing that leads to overtraining. I think another reason why it's really important to well first, and we can, maybe one of you guys can help explain this in a second, like, like what, how do we determine that point or like, what does that point feel like? Like, how do we know we're staying under the limit? But one of the important reasons to stay below it is 
you know, there's this idea that 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 threshold can't be pulled up. It can only be pushed up. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of time crunch athletes, um, you know, might override their base rides. Like they might say, you know, I only have two hours to ride today, so I'm, I'm just going to do as much tempo as I can. You know, yeah, that generates a lot of TSS, but the problem there is that you're not actually improving the thing we want to improve um, mm-hmm. because it can only be pushed up, which means we have to stay under it. This has got to be one of the biggest things as a coach I find myself uh, telling athletes mm-hmm. is you're going too hard on your endurance rides and, and, and to their, to their, uh, credit, they're motivated. They're excited. They want to go harder. And I get that. Like I, but you, it's like, I'm, you're always constantly like, like bringing, like pulling in the reins. You're like, all right, dude, chill out. Mm-hmm. Easy days, easy, hard days, hard. This endurance ride is not your hard day. Well, you've got two hard days. Go hard on those two days. This endurance ride is not one of those hard days. So keep it below this, the, what we're calling LT1. To be completely honest with you, I, I, I've been saying that, saying that for a long time, but this uh, language of LT1, LT2 um, is, is actually like fairly, fairly new to me as a coach and as an athlete. Like I wasn't as informed on this, this topic until, you know, the last year or two. Uh, and I think that this is really important information that, that, especially eager athletes need to know because I, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people train over their LT one and it compromises their, their hard workouts for that week. And if they do that all the time, uh, yeah, it's just a, a sure way to burn out. And I think, right. I think a really important thing to say there, um, to your point, Drew, is that, yeah, a lot of people aren't, aren't aware of this and, you know, as coaches and as athletes, we can make the assumption that LT1 is the top of zone two, right? You know, we, we can assume that the zones that are derived, you know, just by percentages of our FTP are going to be correct for us. But the important thing is, um, is that we have to acknowledge that they might not be. So your LT1 could be at 65% of your, of your FTP. But with a lot of training, it could be 75%, right? So it's going to vary depending on people. And so I think as coaches, one of the important things here is um, helping athletes understand, uh, you know, what, what that feels like, like what that threshold feels like and how we know when we've gone over it. So um, can someone here just help our listeners understand um you know, maybe what are some of the telltale signs that we've gone over that threshold, um, aside from looking down at our power meter and seeing the numbers creep into zone three? Well, you mentioned that, you know, it's, it correlates with the ventilatory threshold. And I've heard a lot of people talk about the, the talk test. Uh, like if you, if you can talk, you're below it. If you can't talk, you're above it. When... Steven Seiler, who's one of the uh, researchers who who came up with all of this, really, LT1, LT2, uh, he, he's the one that's really pushed it. When he was really pushed to give a, a number for LT1, um, he was really pushed. So I'm, I'm saying that this isn't a hardcore, uh, don't, don't take this number and just run with it. 
But when he was pushed, he said a good estimate of LT1 is 75% of your max heart rate. And so just do some quick math. If my max heart rate is 200 or near 200, then a quick LT1 of that would be 150. Um, and I think that's that's roughly a good estimate. And that's 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 the number personally that I find myself using with me and my my athletes is about 75% of your max heart rate. If you can keep it below that, that's a good look at, at LT1. For, you know, and that's that's a huge broad, could be higher or lower, but that's that's a good estimate, I think. Yeah, Drew, and I think the reason Siler has uh, you know, he's he's pushed so hard to come up with a number and he doesn't even like to come up with a number a lot of the mm-hmm. time. LT1 is much more difficult to discern than LT2, you know, which would, which is what everyone would consider their, you know, FTP or threshold. Um, the, the more you train, the more in tune you become with your body, you can pretty easily know where your threshold is at at, at any given time by going out and, and doing a training effort. Um, you can feel when you start to go over it, your legs start to, you know, you can feel that lactic acid start to build up. Uh, you can feel the, the drop in ability to, uh, to speak words or to, you know, like your oxygen uptake. Maybe it's you're breathing a little bit heavier. It's pretty easy to, to determine that. But LT1 is a lot harder because it's really not that hard of an effort relative to uh, some of your more maximal efforts. So I, I do think that LT1, like if I'm having an athlete, if I'm analyzing a, a, an athlete's power files, I would much rather have them uh, have a power meter on board for their endurance ride when I'm trying to understand, did they stay below or around that certain threshold LT1 that we're trying not to exceed for too long, than have a power meter on board for a VO2 effort. VO2 effort, you just go f- four minutes, pretty much max effort. That's pretty pretty straightforward. But to tell someone to go ride 75% of their max effort, that's pretty hard to discern. And it's, and it's probably quite varied from athlete to athlete where that LT1 actually uh, lies in their, uh, you know, relative to their uh, max heart rate or uh, anaerobic capacity. So uh, another tool that I like to use, and this is something that Styler talks about as well, um, is looking at aerobic decoupling. So um, what that is, is when you're holding a steady power and your heart rate starts to increase relative to that over the course of the ride. And I think, um, you know, when I look at early endurance rides for athletes, um, you know, if we're seeing a lot of decoupling there, we know that they're probably above their LT1. So I think another way of sort of defining it would be, you know, the power at which you could ride where assuming you're eating and drinking correctly, um, your heart rate doesn't start to kind of sneak away from that power. Um, and that's also one of the metrics that I look at for evaluating whether or not somebody had a successful base season is if we can either increase the power before which, you know, we see that decoupling or extend the point at which that decoupling happens. Mm-hmm. Um, do we need to wrap this podcast up soon? Yeah. So I think this was a pretty awesome overview of, you know, what base training is, 
what its significance, uh, you know, the significance of base training, uh, why athletes should incorporate base training instead of skipping over it. Uh, I think there's a lot more that we could expand on here. Uh, And I I think it's really telling. I think it's the fact that there's so much information we could share, uh, I would say alludes to the uh, level of significance that base training has in an overall season of training. Uh, But unfortunately, I think we're out of time for today. We're already at an hour and 20 minutes of recording. So I think we'll we'll wrap it up there for today. And uh, next episode, we'll either pick up where we left off or – uh, jump into the next topic yeah maybe All in right. the next episode we nice can kind of get into podcast. like implementing base so we could maybe talk about the nuts and bolts of like what that periodization looks like i think we've like pretty well established like mm-hmm. what it is and what its significance is but i'm sure our listeners would be really curious like how how like how that works like what that how do they implement that or how we would implement that for them as coaches. Yeah, I think there's a lot we didn't touch on. I think we do need to do a part two. All right, well, let's leave it there. A little cliffhanger for uh, episode two. Cool. Sounds good. All right, thanks, guys. Yeah. Yep. Over and out. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title, the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! If you don't have a sufficient base, you're not going to get stronger over the course of a stage race or a criterium series mm-hmm. um, because you know each and every day your your muscle and liver glycogen levels will be like lower and lower and lower and lower because you have no ability to like perform you know utilizing fat as a substrate and so right. you know also. You know, and, and I haven't seen the research on this, but I, I would wager that there has something to do with like antioxidant or like reactive oxygen series buffering capacity, right? Like mm-hmm. the 
the uh, like cellular damage that happens from high intensity work day in and day out, it's probably resolved a lot better if you have, you know, significant base training in your legs. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I, I would, I don't think that they've done a, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think they've done a study where they've had, you know, people off the couch do a stage race and see what happens to them. But I would imagine that it would not be good for them. I think you do <laughs> have to have a certain, you have to be at a certain fitness level in order for, what we're talking about to even, you know, happen to you. Well, you know, and it's, it's, it's not a very, um, like sexy metric or there is no metric for like fatigue resistance or even like ability Mm -hmm. to improve after X number of days of, you know, hard riding, right? Like, you know, people come to us and they say, I want to have a bigger FTP. Nobody says, I mean, some, some people do, but like, it's, it's going to be like far less common that somebody's going to say like, my goal is to have, um, you know, a 20 minute power after 2000 kilojoules that depreciates less. Cause that's like, not right. <laughs> like, you don't like nobody on the group ride is like, Hey bro, after 2000 kilojoules, you know, how many Watts do you lose off of your FTP? <laughs> like, it's just not mm-hmm. as exciting of a thing, but but really, at the end of the day, you know, we don't do, you know, like your best 20-minute power at the beginning of a race and win. I mean, maybe you, you know, if you're an exceptional time trialist, you do do a huge effort early on and then you like solo away for the remainder of the race. But in most cases, that effort needs to take place later in the race for you to win, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and even when you sort of look at, the difference between pro riders and amateur riders, a lot of times, you know, like their peak power for any given duration is, is not going to be that different, right? Like I've been doing some Zwift racing recently and there's like tons of dudes who can, you know, hold five plus Watts per kilo for an hour. Um, but there- well, there's other, there's other fact, there's other factors there, but <laughs> well, sure. I'm, I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt here, but like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't give I wouldn't give them the benefit of the doubt to be honest. Well, fair enough. But the the point that I'm trying to make is that there there are plenty of people who can bang out really good isolated efforts. But what makes pros pros, or a big part of what makes pros pros, is that they can do that effort again and again and again and again. So you know the the spring classics are mm-hmm. on now, and you know um, what's not impressive sometimes when you look at it is you know the power that those guys do for like one five minute climb but what is impressive is that they do Mm -hmm. it all day long and they do that impressive or semi-impressive five minute power after a very hard 20 minute power and i think again like all of this just comes back to base right it's it's your repeatability your ability to resist fatigue um and so it's it's paramount. Yeah. Yeah. There's a a lot of times uh, cycling news articles, you know, they'll highlight power profiles from pros from a certain race, and they'll they'll say, "Oh, look at what they did on this climb," or or, and it to be honest, it's still impressive, but it's you know, you think, okay, this is this is a 
one of the best riders in the world. And that power number doesn't seem as crazy as I would have thought it is. But you, then you got to remember, they've been riding for five hours before they hit that climb. So, Yeah, somebody yeah. needs to come up with like a, a good metric for this. And there's there's probably stuff like in WKO5 to, to kind of measure that. But um, Training Peaks needs, needs a, like a repeatability metric. Um, you know, this all goes back to the <laughs> the name of the podcast, right? Like, like what what are matches? Like, how do we have more matches? Simple answer is we're going to answer it right. now today on episode one for everybody, and then you'll have the answer. <laughs> it's it's base training. <laughs> it's it's like it's uh, aerobic base, aerobic conditioning um, sets sets the limit for your ability to. Uh, repeat high intensity efforts 